Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jared Kobeck. His independently published I Hate the Internet was an out-of-the-blue surprise literary hit, garnering a front-page review in the New York Times art section, 100,000 copies sold worldwide, a major Big Five contract for his next book, and TV rights option for a show with Chelsea Handler as producer. But no U.S. publisher will touch Only Americans Burn in Hell, his newest book. Maybe it's the title, maybe it's because his last book bombed, or maybe it's because in this one, Kobeck accuses his previous publisher of having been built with Nazi money. Either way, here we are. A book that's been released in the UK to glowing reviews is being published in America by the author's own indie press. We heard you like books. Only Americans Burn in Hell is provocative, searing, absolutely hilarious, and angry. It's the takedown that a country that elected Donald Trump richly deserves. The plot of the novel, an immortal fairy queen arrives in L.A. from a magical female-only island to search for a fairy daughter who has run away to America. It's a great book. We had a great conversation about it. I give you Jared Kobeck. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks for having me. Is this fair to say? I, my, I think we said in, in, in the so-called pre-interview. No, it wasn't really a pre-interview, but... This is your first podcast? You don't know that you've ever done a podcast before? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. I, uh, I mean, I've never done a podcast before where there isn't like some technical, technical hang up oh, in, nice. the, in the pre-interview. Oh, there we go. Okay. I was going to say, I was hoping you meant like the, you've never, this could be the best experience in an unqualified sense, but no, <laughs> in a very qualified sense. You've written a new book, Only Americans Burn in Hell. Uh, it's a, a, an incredibly fun read and you are... You also, uh, this is not your first book. You've written another book, I Hate the Internet, which was sort of a, it made a huge splash, one that like, it seems like you probably didn't anticipate. Yeah, it was a, um, well, I mean, I've told the story before, but I'll, so I'll tell it in the most condensed way, because I think I've gotten good at saying it. Um, I wrote the book in 2014, I Hate the Internet in 2014, spent a year trying to get it published. And no one wanted to publish it. Big publishers, small publishers. But I really had the sense, like, if you put this thing into the world, it will work. Did um, you get a lot of form rejections? Or was it like, were they like, hey, this was it the yes, no, yes, yes, we'd love to do this. No, we can't do it now. But yes, sometime in the future, we'd love. Was, I mean, what was it? Was it like, how demoralizing was that? Oh, it's, I mean, there's nothing more demoralizing than being a writer trying to get something published when no one wants to take you seriously. Um, in terms of like uh, the form rejections, mostly at this point you get those from agents, you know, when you're still delusional enough to think you can be published by a major, you have to, and you've got a manuscript, you go through this incredible process of like sending random agents emails who invariably send you back an email. They'll either send you the form or they'll ignore you, or they'll ask to see the manuscript. And then when they ask to see the manuscript, invariably the response is like, well, I think this is really good, but I don't know how to get it published. Um, which I, I, I find- And aren't you like, wait, you're the agent. That's yes. why people hire you. You yes. do know exactly how to get things published. Yeah, and that, and that is the, that, those are the emails that I think are the most demoralizing um, because it's someone being like, yeah, it's the only job in the world where a response, where a legitimate response is, it's too hard to do my job. You know, anyone else who did that would just be fired. But agents routinely send out emails to people that are like, yeah, this should be published. I don't know how to do it. Thus, I'm passing on it. Um, and then like with some of the smaller presses, uh, you can also get form rejections. Uh, but you have a better chance of getting a personalized rejection. Um, but what so was like the best rejection you got? What was the rejection? It's like, you know what? For his rejections go, this is actually doesn't make me want to cut my slash my wrist with like a butter knife. Uh, I've not had an experience which didn't make me 
want to slash my particularly with that book all of the rejections were crushing in one way or the other um i've never had a good rejection <laughs> ever um but yeah rejections by nature are pretty terrible i guess yeah any, i mean in any form the one thing unless I- you're so just unless the only time a rejection is not painful i guess is if you're not invested to begin with right like and you're just doing something on a lark and you really don't care. But at the point you have any emotional investment yeah. in anything, a rejection's awful. It's terrible. Although I do, th- I actually have thought that everyone, it would be good for everyone if everyone had to go through a year of just getting the rejections, like just a year of being an unsuccessful writer. You think Ivanka Trump would be a different person? I think everyone would be. Yeah, Ivanka Trump, all of those people, if they had been rejected solidly for a year, would be much better people. Because you do get immune to it. You know, you you do. The sting of it on the first rejection is incredible. The sting of it on, like, the 30th or the 40th rejection, it doesn't really hurt anymore. Um, It's just annoying. And actually, I think as... You know, it's like waterboarding, right? When you figure out they're not torturing you, you just show up with like a Danielle steel knife yeah. on a beach towel. Like, all right, all right. Good, good, good. You guys know we're not drowning. You <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, I think it's like as human beings, we live in constant fear of rejection. But if you get rejected so much at a certain point, you lose the fear of rejection. And there's not that's not a terrible skill to, to acquire because then you just keep going. Right. Um, And so anyway, with the book, after pretty much everyone rejected it, I decided to publish it myself. And the expectation was like, maybe I can sell a few thousand copies. Maybe I can get the next book published on a major by the base, uh, just on like having this minor success. And And how long have you been writing at this point? Too long. Um, I don't know, like professionally or, or in terms of wanting to do it professionally probably six years seven years something like that um and uh when it came out it just went completely insane uh it was like it took about a month for it to really kick off but the end result of it is like this book that originated on a press that was really just some boxes under my bed um has been translated into like 10 or 11 languages it's been published in 13 countries what was the most surprising language that you were like oh i didn't see that coming uh serbian oh wow yeah and it did really well in serbia so you can legitimately say hey the young people in serbia they love me (laughs) (laughs) i'm a big fan (laughs) i don't know how young they are but maybe maybe i mean i went to serbia Actually, um, I had I got invited to a literary festival in Germany right around the time that the Serbian translation came out. So I sent them an email being like, I'm here. Do you want me? Do you want me to come over? And they were like, yeah. And it was it was actually an amazing experience because I think, you know, Serbia sort of has this status as a pariah nation because of the Balkan Wars. So American writers don't really go there and i would guess most americans of most stripes unless there's a, a, a buck to be made in some yeah kind of conglomerate or something or most people aren't going oh, what are we going to do this year i hear they're lovely little cape cods so we could yeah. you know go to Serbia. <laughs> just kind of you know it's like it's like nantucket but different yeah it, it, it yeah it's definitely different than nantucket um but it was amazing. Like, and they treated it really, really seriously because so few American writers go there. Um, the well, that's got to cover up for some of the sting of the rejections. Like, you know, the, hey. Oh yeah, no, I'm past the point where where I really care about the rejections anymore. Um, or at least I've gotten to a point where the rejections are bigger. You know, like I think getting the tiny rejections might. To answer your other question, it's like. Getting rejected for small things is probably more painful than getting rejected for big things, right? Where it's like big things you can understand why you're being rejected. When it's this, when the stakes are so low, you're just like, how can I be getting rejected for this? You know, like if the Serbs had said, "Nah, we'll take a pass." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know you're right here, but we'd like to take a pass. Yeah, that's like a. What was that? Oh, uh, oh, who's the guy who used to be with Jimmy Kimmel on the Man Show? Adam Carolla. 
right. his his memoir was called Not Quite Taco Bell Material because <laughs> he, he talks about being like 15 and applying for a job at Taco Bell. He's like, I figured I could just go in and write the application on yeah. crayon. And he said, I applied. The manager sent me that. I just, you're just not what we're looking for. He's yeah. like, at that moment, I learned I was not quite Taco Bell material. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. But you got this. I mean, you got a front page splash rave review in the New York Times for that book. Uh, yeah, it was unusual. It, it was. I mean, sometimes you do these things and they're just charm, right? And that book was just charmed. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that Times review kind of ruined my life in a positive way, I guess. But it. Really- what do you, now, say, now, most people, when they say they get a New York Times review, especially if they're an author, that's like. Hey, this is what I've been looking for. How did it ruin your life? It uh, the amount of attention that came in from that review was so over the top that I went from being one of the most obscure writers uh, in the country to being not like a massively Stephen King high profile, but for a little while it just sort of put me in this. Uh, position of being very high profile for what it was and just like money started coming in and all of these things that are actually objectively good happened but it was still total chaos and like i it's given me this idea that there's good chaos and there's bad chaos but they both kind of feel the same unless you're totally narcissistic Right. Where it's like when totally unpredictable things are happening that you have no control over, that's chaos. They might be to your benefit. They still feel like chaos where you just like every day you're waking up and there's a new thing that you don't know how to deal with. This Uh, is like the people that win the lottery and. Yeah. That's, you hear, that's, and you hear it go bankrupt. Like they're, they wind up worse off than they were before. Yeah. I because mean, all I, of a sudden you just you can't handle it. Like, I, yeah. I mean, I have not ended up worse than I was before, but it real there really was like a, a period of nine months in there where I just lost total control of my life and just sort of became a servant to the book, you know, and like the things that the book needed. And it, it was just insane. It was just, it was a completely insane thing. And I, you know, again, like when I said that the book was charmed, I've known other people who have gotten really rave reviews in a very similar way in the New York Times and haven't had it really move it at all. Like it'll it'll be a thing where it's a thing to brag about to your friends, right? But you're still basically in the same place that you were, but maybe it's easier to set something up next time uh that was not my experience my experience was like everything has just gone completely fucko bazoo and remain that way for a very long time and then kind of calm down um when the next book came out and failed miserably that's interesting that's interesting so i mean is is part of what you're talking about like i mean you you write a lot about like in your most recent book you know you it's 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 novel it's a novel and yet you know it's a novel with running life commentary in it and, yeah uh, and first person stuff it's a really interesting form of literary it's a great literary form but but you spend a lot of time kind of critiquing this kind of uh you know disenchanting global capitalist thing that just makes people objects not subjects you kind mm-hmm. of you know but it sounds like is that kind of what's happened to you like like hey like I'm now like chasing after the the next, you know, as you're promoting this book, like, Hey, I'm part of the machine at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that was probably the the most disheartening aspect of doing I hate the internet, which I think at the heart of it was motivated by a critique of global capitalism and especially the, the global capitalism of the online world. Right. And you very quickly realize the more successful something is, the m- there's only one place for it to go, which is into that world. Um, and you sort you just sort of become part of the thing and you cannot avoid it. You know, um, if you are if you are generating content, you are going to end up making money for the people who you may find to be really repellent. And that's just the nature of um so like you talk in this book penguin random house like yeah yeah who was like owned by nazis and 
Yeah. You're all of a sudden, it's like, it's like how, instead of six, like six degrees from Kevin Bacon, it's like six degrees from Adolf Hitler. How far am I from, yeah. you know, Auschwitz? Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I think when we, so the backstory to that, just for people listening, is that the next book that I did was published by Penguin Random House and did not do well. And there are a variety of reasons for why some of it is mine some of it is there some of it was just the moment but it really failed so i went from like having this unbelievably unexpected success to just a massive commercial failure um and what i realized when i was writing the only americans was like i'm out like that book failed so badly that i i probably can never get published by one of the major publishers again um and that allowed me a really funny vantage point to actually just sort of talk about the things that writers just never really want to talk about because if you're publishing in america there's only five places to go if you're a success right there is five major companies each of those companies is old enough and has been around long enough that and has conglomerated enough in the global economy that they all have some nasty aspect of their publishing history. And so Penguin, when we think about Penguin, we think about like this sort of storied mid-century Ameri- uh, English publishing, right? Where it's like, oh yeah, Penguin, they did paperbacks. They, they're they from England, but actually they're owned. And you can't hate a Penguin. I mean, you see Penguins yeah, on yeah, videos, yeah, yeah. Say YouTube videos, no, Penguins, I mean, I they're still, lovable. Penguins are as, lovable. For as much shit as I talk about that company in the book, I still love the logo. You know, like I... I have fond feelings towards Penguin, but Penguin is now owned by a German multinational conglomerate named Bertelsmann, which spent World War II collaborating with the Nazi regime, right? Now, you can make the argument that all of those people are dead and it's a different company, but it's not, right? Like, they are all dead, but that money is still there in some way or another that legacy is still there and it just was really weird to me i just started thinking like how weird is it that my at the time my professional aspiration was to be published by a company that had this really terrible history and how weird is it that all writers in america essentially have the aspiration to be published by one of these five companies all of which have done something really horrible and wouldn't it be kind of funny to talk about it in the book and in this totally essentially career suicidal way where it's like I'm never going to be published by Penguin again. Realistically speaking, that probably would have happened whether or not I had written about it in Only Americans. But I at least wanted there to be a reason why, right? Do like, you think you kind of got your mojo back in between? Like, yeah, some some of the the writing in this in this newest book in Only Americans is like back to kind of like what got you on the scene to begin with because it's the pressure once you have this big novel that you, you don't imagine it's going to be a six, this kind of success. It is. Well, then it's sort of like, well, you talk about Guns N' Roses, so I'm a fan of it's like when you come out with Appetite for Destruction as your first album. Yeah, that's like they were victims of their own success in many ways. Right. That's a tough. It's great to have that as your first album, but that's a tough way to start because it's like, how do we follow that up? Yeah, it's a big issue. Um, I the, the thought that I had was I the book that Penguin published after only Americans was an older manuscript. And I was like, okay, this will be, this is the way to avoid second album syndrome, right? Where like you, because it was written before all of this, it's completely untainted by what has happened. And then, you know, maybe this is a way around it. Unfortunately, it wasn't because it was written before Trump. And I think Trump has just created this thing where like, you know, the thing that the, the media that I like to watch the most in, in real fascination is anything between 2010 and 2015, because it's so familiar, but it's like, it's from another world because it's so innocent and totally not connected to the moment we live in. Um, and yet it's only five years old at, or, you know, or like 10 years old. Uh, and I think that book really had that problem. So then when I, when I started writing this, cause I knew, like I started writing only Americans the week 
that the book Penguin published came out because I knew within a week that the book had failed. And I was like, well, I better do something. How uh, did you know the book had failed in a week? Uh, sales. And also I was doing events and at the events, which some of them were really good events. Uh, like some of some, two of them were probably two of the best events I've ever done. Uh, you know, you'd have the audience totally interested, totally fascinated. And then uh, they would just buy back stock copies of I Hate the Internet and ignore, uh, ignore the book completely, the new book completely. This is, I've heard Billy Corrigan say this, like say that like, you know, he, like he, when he, he could just tell when an album, he could feel the buzz. He could tell if it's going to do it or just there's a buzz he could yeah, feel. Yeah. No, you could just feel it was doomed. You could feel, I could feel it was doomed before it came out, but when it came out and I saw those crowds, totally disinterested in buying the book that they had just sat like through 45 minutes of talking about. It was like, all right, this is a disaster. And um, it, it continued to be disastrous. So I don't know. I just started working on this. And I think I was so annoyed by the whole process of that book that it really did reignite some kind of fire and created a, you know, whatever only Americans burn in hell turned into. Do you, do you think there's kind of like a cultural critic profit edge to like that you have in this in Only Americans Burn in Hell and uh I hate the internet that in your middle book like because it's older like are you yeah. less jaded? I mean is there something about like you as cultural critic that 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 makes for better work for you? I think it's well this is what I'd say. I I still think that the book that Penguin published is actually a very good novel like it functions in the way that traditionally novels have functioned right for quite a while was this the one you won you you got had you had the uh bad sex yeah i got i got short i got shortlisted for the bad sex and fiction award for that book um talking about kissing your sister because she's not winning i mean do you want i mean like Oh, Do you want to win that? If you're shortlisted, I guess you want to win. I mean, yeah, like- you know, the thing is, I I don't like awards. I really find literary awards in particular weird because it's. I mean, I don't even know what it is, right? Like, it's it's not a competition. But that one, when I got the shortlist, I was just like, please let me win this because if if I had won it, it would be on everything I did. Uh, from now until the end of my life, that would be the first words in the. It'd bio. be the first line on my Tinder profile. Yeah, winner. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody, look at me. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean that was weird too because it was I was shortlisted for the Bad Sex and Fiction Award for a passage that wasn't actually a sex passage. Like every other nominee. Uh, it was like them writing sex, but they, I didn't get shortlisted for that. I got shortlisted for like a pretentious character describing how happy she was that she had had sex. Everyone else, it's fucking <laughs> me. It's like, you know, an absurd, an intentional absurd description of what happened of someone writing about like what happens after you've had sex when you haven't had sex for a really long time, you know, and the weird, and, and the weird thing about it is yeah, an, yeah. when you're getting that award, you think I'll say, I'd like to thank uh, all the people that rejected me and created the dry spells in my own life. Yeah. <laughs> and the friends exactly. who comforted me in that time, who also yeah, couldn't yeah. connect with anybody. <laughs> this is the, the, the award should really go to all of us together. Yeah. But I mean, the, the funny thing is there actually is a really bad sex passage in that novel. But one of the things that I realized is like, because it's a really, it, it, and it's intentionally bad writing about sex because it's um, because the passage that actually is a sex scene in the novel is gay sex. They, they shortlisted the hetero passage instead and all of the the passages in that from all the other books that were shortlisted were all straight sex it was it was like like there was some weird thing where they shortlisted they wanted to short my guess is they wanted to shortlist the gay sex but 
they felt uncomfortable doing that, that. that's like in that sorry live sketch sketch where like the holy guy playing julian castro comes out i want to apologize to all democrats for being straight but i am latino that should count for something <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, we can't shortlist the gay scenes because we're gonna look we're gonna yeah. look uh homophobic if we do that yeah no and i that is the best guess i have as to why they shortlisted isn't the that the stuff did. that creates the donald trump kind of stuff like that it's yes. not just de- it, it's not decency like hey nobody sh- we should nobody we shouldn't want gays to feel marginalized but it's the sort of policing of speech and ideas to the degree that like yeah well, no. we, can't, we, we we have to sort of overanalyze everything so reflexively right for for yeah. validation lest the slacktivist outrage come and and condemn yeah. us yeah i i mean i the the conclusion that i drew was that the liberal intelligentsia was <clears throat> believes that homosexuals are incapable of having bad sex, which is not true. Right. But like, yeah, they, I, I, that's know. like, that's a, that's a position they, they could not validate. So they had to nominate a passage that doesn't even remotely fit the purview or the description of the, that should be, the, okay. That should be your next novel. The, <laughs> the, 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 the committee that gives them not. <laughs> you're right about the lives <clears throat> of the people that shortlisted you for the fans. That's right. a great book. Yeah, it would be interesting. I don't know. It's this magazine called The Literary Review, which is published out of England. I don't know who anyone involved in that. I'm sure is. so many there collaborate with not. Uh, at least at one generation back. You might have to go a couple more than that. Two. But yeah, two or three. Well, the royal family. What's his The guy who who left. Who left. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's in the crown and all that stuff. You know, he, I mean. Yeah, uh, no, no. Yeah. Every, you know, doesn't. Uh, I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Winkhenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So, okay, the plot here we got it of only Americans burn in hell, which I would think that the Pope would disagree with you, quite frankly. I think that all <laughs> kinds of people burn in hell. But, you know, hey, let's just, you know, let's stick with your premise. So we've got this immortal, immortal fairy queen. She goes into L.A. She's in this kind of female-only island, but it's different kind of than Wonder Woman's female island. It's 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 a little different for reasons you you uh, describe. And her life would be better if she wasn't straight, uh, which or if she was, uh, yeah, because you know then she could have a lesbian island. And but she, you know, she can't do that. Like, mm-hmm. and eventually she's got to go to L.A. to get her fairy daughter who's run away to America and she meets like uh, an interesting Saudi character in, 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 in the journey who accompanies her, who's into kind of pervy sex and drugs and fun. I mean, he's, you know, this is, I mean, it's pretty outlandish at some level, but like, uh, it's great about, as you talk about, as you're describing early in the book, you you kind of offer your own running commentary about Game of Thrones and Wonder Woman. And you're kind of, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's sort of like, like, look, you know, look, this is only a slightly more outlandish version of what could be a prime streaming thing, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the motivations for doing a fantasy novel 
which it kind of is and kind of isn't, um, was that I, I just like, I find all of this entertainment, all the fantasy entertainment seems to really function as war pornography for people who live in a warrior society, which the U S is, but are at a, at a, at a, at an, are, are personally in a place in a, of the political spectrum where they have to be in opposition to war. So like, I like this, the, the story that really, the, the moment where I really started thinking about doing it was like, I was at a friend's house, a bunch of people were over, everyone was talking about how outrageous it was that we were still in Afghanistan. And then when 9 PM rolled around, everybody went into the living room and watched an episode of game of thrones. Stop talking. Exactly. And that was just, it was one of those. Did you watch game of thrones? Were you a fan of game of thrones? I've watched all of game of thrones. So I, have I. Not, I think I've watched it twice. I do not like it, but I have watched. What it don't all. you like about it? Other than the fact that like, there's a, there's, a good, there's one or two good seasons in there, but mostly I just don't, I just, I don't care. You know, like, I just, I don't give a fuck. I don't see the power analogy. I don't see anything except, like, a soap opera with dragons that occasionally show up. And, like, the dragons are all right. I will say that for it. But I don't know. It's just... Isn't it it weird, too? It's, like, it's trying to combine, like, the fantasy genre, right, with real politique, right? With a sort of kind of Machiavellian... But, like, they don't explore so much in the fantasy stuff. Right. Yeah. Like, so you have, oh, he's the three eyed raven. What does that mean? Well, we don't really ever figure yeah. that out. But then also the real politique. Oh, we're going to let this kid take over. And, you know, he's, oh, it's great. We're going to let him that comes from the area that's succeeding from the whole kingdom. We're going to put him on the throne, even though his, yeah. his sister's going to take this, you know, rival to the, it's, it's like, wait. I thought we were doing the best of fantasy and the best right. of real politique. And it wound up by the end being the best of neither. Yeah. Yeah, there's a. I, I mean, I think that's inherent at the core, though, because I there's a video on YouTube. It's a very short video. It's George R. R. Martin critiquing Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, and his critique. And and I and I guess the implication is this was part of what inspired him to do Game of Thrones. The critique is like Tolkien will gloss over the political mechanisms of the societies he's writing about. So like um, Aragon takes the throne and then Tolkien will write 40 years of political history in two sentences, which will be like, everyone's happy, right? Like, and then everyone rejoiced and lived in, in, in splendor. Um, and Martin's critique of that is like, that makes no sense, right? We clearly, if he has to govern, there are mechanisms to this governance. And I gather that Game of Thrones was sort of written in a, to try and address that idea. But actually, it's a, it's a really funny thing, because if you think about it beyond the critique, it's like, who would actually want to read a book about the 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 mechanisms of governance under Aragon, right? Like that is the most boring possible book you could imagine, like 40 years of uh, court strife in Middle Earth is not going to be, you know, like people deciding. How not to- those dwarves again. Yeah. Or like people deciding how to do plumbing. Haven't we bought enough mithril? Yeah. Or like the sewers are backing up. How do we solve this problem? And so I think Martin just tried to do it, but inherently it's not good. So you have to sort of turn it into a soap opera and then you already lose like, but you've got that legacy where it's like this pretense that you're actually writing about governance when you aren't at all. And it's, and and so I think like, you know, they, those guys got a lot of shit for, for the end that final season. But I think there was no, there's probably no way to end that because the contradiction is inherent from the beginning, but they probably could have done a better job. So I, so like, and then you compare, it's so interesting because Wonder Woman is so interesting. You, right. you talk about this kind of, <laughs> I love what you say, like, basically like you quote this one, uh, somebody said that uh, it was, oh shoot, was it, I forget what outlet it was in. Oh, it was on the website of the ACLU. It, the most political thing you can do this weekend is go see Wonder Woman, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it's like, and nobody laughed when the, it's like that's not said. It sounds great, like it sounds like a Saturday Night Live thing that somebody would say. Yeah. That, right? Well, but, but, I mean, I think too, you have to remember the moment when Wonder Woman came out, 
which was pretty soon into the Trump presidency. And I don't think anyone, I mean, to the degree that anyone has figured it out now, I would, I'm not sure, but certainly then no one really had any idea what a coherent response would be. And I think America has gotten a little too invested in the meaning of corporate media properties. And so like people really were talking about this not very good superhero film and going to it as like an act of resistance. (laughs) And the thing is, no one ever talks about like who actually makes money off of that, who actually runs Warner Brothers, you know, and my guess would be, you know, the same people who've been running everything for a very long time, right? Like, and this is this is this really interesting moment that we're in, which is the idea that corporately owned media properties can be seen as a cipher for whatever is happening in American life. I think they certainly can be reflective, but I don't think there's any inherent progressivism in a property that is going to generate billions of dollars for truly horrible companies run yeah, by truly I, horrible people. It's interesting. I've heard, I listen to this podcast, Why Theory. Mm-hmm. It's brilliant. It's by a guy, Todd McGowan and uh, Ryan. Oh, what's his former student saying? I forget. But it's, they're basically talking about like, you know, kind of critical theory for the rest of us sort of thing. And they're talking about political correctness. They're saying, you know, they always say, yeah, it would be great if we had some in the sense. And their theory is like why the politically correct culture comes in. It's basically a concession to the corporatism and stuff that basically we can't really make a more democratic culture where more resources go to more people and there's more equality. So what we do then is a concession. We police language uh, militantly with pure things. And that makes us think we're winning, right? Like, so right. if we can, and so it's a decept, it's almost, it's almost this like passion that sort of keeps ensconced those kinds of corporate interests, right? Because you, because they can play into it too. You know, oh, we can get the corporations to, to yeah. not, to, you know, it, and so it sort of, it creates, I think, a, a, among, it creates a sort of a false consciousness. Yeah. That actually things are getting better than they are. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think one of the really complicated problems for people on the left in America is that there was a dialect, and, and you can call it political correctness, right? There was a dialect that was developed around an idea, which was, why don't we try to make American language less rude, right? Like, fundamentally, I think that was the impulse at some point, that dialect went from its origins into it was adopted by corporate America as a way to sort of disguise what corporate America was doing, you know, where it's like there's a joke in, in, in Only Americans where it's like you can work for a weapons manufacturer, right? And the entire function of your job will be building bombs that we will eventually drop on Muslims. And that's the entire function, you know, of that job. And no one will ever blink at that, right? Like that is a completely socially acceptable job being involved in sort of the wholesale, the wholesale slaughter of Muslims. That's fine. But if you get drunk and then go on Twitter and actually say what you're doing, you'll be fired. And I think, I think that is the real problem with the language, right? Where it's like, if you create, if it becomes entirely about language, it's a really good way of masking option, of masking actions, right? And so we don't talk about actions, we just talk about language. And that is crazy. And it yeah. really, it's a really good way of hiding everything. Yeah, you have this line in the book, right? You say that Twitter outrage is a shitty iteration of the church. Yeah, it's almost like it's like religion without potlucks or soup kitchens or any of the nice things. Yeah, but all no. the ju- but all the judgment, all the sh- all the negative, the dark sides, like on steroids of religion. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a really good metaphor for online outrage. Right, we have now basically recreated the structure of the Catholic Church. You can be excommunicated. You can suffer all of these consequences for heresy, uh, but None of the things that the church did, which were actually good, are available to us. Right? This is why I, that scene where Cersei in Game of Thrones, like 
where where she has to do the naked shame walk and everybody's yeah, like yeah. shame shame and everybody's like oh. but that's like uh, i mean this is uh, there's these experiences right like that's who we are right like we're, yeah. we're we're the people that like and and there's lots of experiences like like this in only americans right where where as a reader you're kind of like your temptation is right like to like oh yeah we're shitty but like you should point as a reader i found myself saying wait wait i should be realizing i'm shitty like i I, I, like i'm not like this is not somebody else i do all this stuff yeah yeah i mean i think the degree to which it's infected all of us is pretty remarkable right but i mean to be fair to everyone it's like these are impulses that human beings have had since the beginning of time Right. Sure. There has not been digital mechanisms to enhance those impulses for the profit of like a thousand people in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. And that's what's new about it, which is all of this in a funny way turns into corporate product. Right. And it's interesting because a thousand people can enrich themselves on a mechanism that gets everybody this sort of platform to be an enlarged, worse form of yeah. themselves. Which most pre-moderns would never have gotten, right? So you have yeah, this, exactly. you have this sort of thing that like exemplifies some of the dark sides of the human condition at the same time enriching a, a very tiny elite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the situation we're in right now, and it's it's insane that it happened, but you can also see how it happened, you know, which is like no one understood what they were doing really. And then it was all so new and this is what you get. And it's, it's, it's a terrifying prospect because it's like, how do you, how do you fix that? How do you address that? I'm not sure you can, you know, I think this is just one of those things we have to live with perhaps indefinite. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting too, because is the problem, you know, you, you talk a lot about in the book, how these are the kind of these superhero films that dress up this sort of unexamined kind of nationalist glory of American foreign policy. And then they dress that up in social liberation, right? That, oh, look, Black Panther, Wonder Woman, look, it's this, you know, like, you know, Bill Maher did this great thing about like self-loathing white people. Just they said, look, stop going to parties and asking black people what they think of Black Panther. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, But what's interesting is like, is what irritates you like the, the, not just, not like the fact of it as much as the fact that nobody sees the irony in any of it. Like, it's like, look, the world's messy and we're always going to have weird interests, in but like, right. th- 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 this like seems like really self deceived on a big, like, group level. Yeah. I mean, I, I here's how I describe it I, I think it's too much to expect most people to care, right? Like, the complexity of having a normal life at any time is really a lot. The complexity of having a normal life in 2019, if you're just someone who's like going to work and ha- and trying to figure out how to feed your kids, the complexity of that has gotten really crazy. I do not expect people who are doing that to be engaged in like a profound media critique, right? Like people just want to watch shit so they, they can just have some escapism. So there's some some pleasure can come into their life, right? That to me seems completely legitimate. When you have an intellectual class that is not doing that, that I find incredible. Um, Where it's like, you know, and this isn't even an argument for like an intellectual vanguard that leads the people to to wisdom. It's more like there there is a kind of monoculture in the way that most of this or maybe several overlapping monocultures in which all of this stuff is written about and thought about and presented to people um and i think most those monocultures are not particularly examining the things that they're presenting while pretending that they're examining those things and that i find incredibly irritating and really damaging i think in the long run yeah i've heard a couple center right thoughtful journalists who were kind of never Trumpers in that vein. Right. And people, they've said, people said, you know, when are you going to get on the, tra- on the train? When are you gonna-? He's like, no, our job was never to get on the bandwagon. Just because right. we're center, our job, we're intellectuals and critics. Our job should always, should never be this sort of partisan kind of thing. E- you know, even if we have certain bent to ideas, it should always be, it, it, there should be this kind of function yeah. that w- what we're doing is to try to stir the mix up a little bit and help self-reflection. And that kind of, it, it, it's sort of that, I take it, you mean that's kind of, there's too much of that where people are like, 
or the people that should be kind of saying, hey, what are, really is this, this Black Panther really, you know, or Wonder Woman really, is this really all we're thinking? It's, you know, it's a f- superhero movie. They should be the ones maybe giving a little bit of, ah, it's a superhero movie, right? <laughs> like, uh, instead of saying, this is the most powerful thing you can do this week. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's, a, it's a weird moment. Right, where people who should be do- people who should be doing that just by and large are not, and that would be one thing if it was just boosterism, right? But there, but the people who aren't doing that have found a way to sort of give the illusion that they are, and that's what's annoying to me. Like the presentation of like another article about one, which is like supposedly really thoughtful about its impact and all of this stuff, but that never mentions who owns it never mentions what its actual impact is which is like perpetuating i don't know income inequality you know, like- <laughs> there's a a, a a female prominent female kind of minister and writer and thinker who kind of wrote this book about her sexual awakening and kind of, you know went through a divorce and mm-hmm. like sort of, and, and it's an interesting story but she said you know like her, her views on porn have changed now she says you know i'm okay with porn as long as it's ethically sourced and i'm thinking what could you watch it on that's ethically sourced yeah like a, like a film strip i mean like how could you like, what piece of digital equipment could you watch ethically sourced porn on that's not ethically compromised yeah well i mean this is a this is an idea that's in i hate the internet right which is i hate the internet probably is the only book that just identifies itself as completely unethical by virtue of the fact that the entire thing was manufactured on devices built by slaves in China, right? And that's another of these really serious existential issues that we're in the middle of, right? Like if every single device and every single form of information that is coming to you has a baked in evil to it, can any of that information have virtue? Or is it just all inherently tainted? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's not a solvable problem. I labor on, you labor on, but, you know, all of this stuff does have re- really unethical aspects built into it. And how do you, what do you do in that? I mean, all my, my, my solution to it is to mention it as much as possible and be as annoying about it as possible. But I'm under no illusions that, that, that even just doing that has its own baked-in problems, right? Like, there is no ethical sourcing when it comes to media. Is is what keeps you from hypocrisy then kind of that sort of honesty about the dilemma that is that I mean, and I mean that that, that's not like a loaded question. I mean, is that because I mean, everybody's afraid of being a hypocrite. I always say, though, if you're not a hypocrite, you got low moral standards, right? Because we all we all we all wind up falling short of our best ideals. But you're talking about a little bit of a different problem because you're kind of like it's it's sort of it seems like falling short is so built into anything we want to do. In in kind of late modern Western life, right. like how do you? I mean, I am a hypocrite. I don't, I don't think there's any way around it. Like the right, it, given the series of things that I believe, I should not be producing work, right? Like I should just go into the woods and figure out how to survive. I do not have. Could you work. do that? Are you a woodsy? I can't. Well, like, no. I, that's what I was just going to say. Do you I like the woods? I I can't stand the woods. I'm okay with nature. You I mean, know? I like nature, but I wouldn't want, I like, I, uh, I don't like, like, I couldn't, yeah, I don't like uh, camping like for days. I, I, time. Well, that's the thing. I don't have the moral courage or the character to be able to do that. Right. But you could argue if you were in a really strict mo- mind that that's what I should do. Right. Like I shouldn't actually be doing what I do given what I believe. So that is a kind of hypocrisy. The way that I try to address it is I try to be as lacerating of my own faults in the thing as possible. You know, like I, I don't, I I have no interest in presenting myself as someone who isn't, you know, really profoundly culpable or implicated by the things that I'm doing. And I think that's interesting too, you know, and it's also a really good way of making fun of yourself. Yeah. I mean, and that ability to do that, I, you know, I think about Martin Luther, says in this treatise called the freedom of christian he says you know the christian is lord of all and servant of all lord of all because if you know you're justified by faith not by something you do then then you're you're nobody can really make you self-justify yourself in front of them then you can be really be servant of all you don't have to do works for god you can really do them for your neighbor you can actually you know you don't have to do something because you want to be a good uh uh person 
I, I wonder if that's if that's sort of uh, is that sort of some sort of that sort of almost spirituality or ethos. Do you have to be able to kind of have that kind of dialectic where you have to you have to have enough of a sort of honesty that you don't have to put up a self righteous air and pretend that you're not compromised. And yet, then, but also, how do you keep it out of the nihilism? That's like I'm compromised. I'm, you know, like I mean, that, that's it. I mean, that seems to be the space if you can occupy it, right? That where, where life could be livable. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, just the way that I personally try to avoid the nihilism, and God knows, occasionally I go right over that cliff into it. Um, but fundamentally- what happens when you go over the cliff? What do you do? Do you eat bonbons? Do you get on Amazon and buy like? Are you, is it like that scene in Flight Club where you're just on the toilet with your smartphone <laughs> buying stuff? I don't know. I I think I just honestly I just sort of feel really really terrible about things and can't see the the point in any of it, you know. And then try to work my way out of it. But the way, but really the way that I, that I think you can avoid it or that I have avoided it is that fundamentally I believe in people. Um, like people can be really, really shitty. There is no question that yes. can be incredibly shitty, but I also think people's baseline <clears throat> is a kind of goodness, you know? Um, it's just that often gets, uh, obscured, by their shittiness or their shitty actions or you know and i include myself in this right like god knows i'm capable of being shitty but i do i do think that like fundamentally if you think about people and just like in the day-to-day their day-to-day lives not that bad you know it's and one of the one of the things that's really perverse about the digital moment is that those lives have now through the sort of naive goodness of the people using social media have become corporate property. And that's new, right? Like people used to be able to live whatever their tiny good lives were, and it wasn't generating money directly, just in sort of like the day-to-day thoughts. They might be consumers, but they weren't product. And now they are. And that's really strange. Yeah. And it's sort of like your, your, the emotivism and the, this and that, uh, the, the kind of, uh, act, like acting out on social media and stuff like that, it encourages it, right? That's how they yeah. you, they make more money, get more clicks. It's so like so the system functions best when people are at their darkest. Yes, like it doesn't function best. Be- it's funny because I had this guy on uh, a philosopher who wrote this book about tr- arrogance and and public and political culture, and he was saying joking. He was he was saying this seriously to a group of big executives from the you know big mm-hmm. Silicon Valley companies. He said, we we're having some drinks, and he says, you know, what if we t- replace like the like emoji and this crying and this emoji with justified by the evidence, not justified <laughs> by the evidence, or not enough evidence to tell? And they all just laugh like that. They're like, that's really good, really good. And he said, you know, what they they thought I was thinking, like, making a joke. And he said, and then what they also understood better than I did was. Even if we did that, they would just become the new emojis. Nobody would click not justified by the evidence rationally. They're just like, bullshit. I hate those liberals. I right. hate those Trump. Like it would just become the new emotive thing. Like, right. Because that's how the economy of this stuff works, right? It yeah. doesn't work with us at our, at our most reflective, forbearing selves. It works when we're kind of amped up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, it, I think it's designed to function off the worst human impulses and designed to inflame those impulses. And it's strange because I think in the beginning, that was an accidental byproduct of it. And I think now it's very, very intentional. There was a story that came out maybe a year ago, maybe a little less than a year ago, about Instagram has... So if someone posts to Instagram, right, and they get 500 hearts on that image. Instagram doesn't show those images. It doesn't show you all of those hearts all at once. They dole it out. Right, right, right. So you you get the dopamine hit. Yeah. And I mean, that is just, I mean, that's just manipulation, right? And that to me seems like something very different than, I don't know, when Facebook introduced likes. Because I don't think they understood what it was. Remember that scene in The Matrix where they're saying like, or the guy, the Judas character is like, I want to be put back in. I want to yeah. be put back. I want to be somebody famous, a musician. Yeah, he yeah. says, you know, ignorance is bliss. I mean, there's a sense in which, like, it, that's such a dark scene that's ahead of its time, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so just plug me in. Plug yeah, me yeah, in. Yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, 
this is what is being done to people who, like I said, don't have the time to really even think about, right? Like the ability to think about, to the to have the time to think about like hearts on Instagram is fundamentally a luxury that I don't think the economy necessarily affords most people anymore. And it's, and so it's, there's a, there's you gotta be talking on a podcast to do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, this is a luxury. I didn't have to go to work today. Right. I didn't, I don't, my, my life is what it is. So I don't have those normal demands, but it's like, you know, most people don't have that. And most people have to exist in this ecosystem of this shit where they're just being manipulated constantly. Your book describes a lot of what I think Max Weber calls disenchantment, right? That we live in this world where everything's disenchanted and everything becomes mechanistic and everything kind of becomes, uh, you know, and you feel like just part of the machine, right? Right. And yeah, in the midst of it, you have this first person experience, like in the first like third of the book that I I can only describe as enchanting. I mean, it's – it's real enchantment. And you talk about your friend, Arafat Kazi, who who was the fattest guy in Bangladesh or something. Yeah, he at one point was the fattest man in Bangladesh. Yeah. And did you bond like, you're like, hey, I'm the fattest guy. Like, hey, I, I was shortlisted for the worst. <laughs> I say, hey, no, he, all right, we could be yeah, friends. He, he and I have known each other for so long, um, since like 2001. But you got this like Guns N' Roses ticket. And you got two. And, and you right. thought, I want to take this guy. And... You had there's some complications with it. You said before I left, I made a vow to the universe. If Arafat Kazi got into the pit to see Guns N' Roses at the, at the Staples Center, then I would stop worrying about the outcome of my life. I would right. take it as a sign that everything would be fine, even if my last novel had commanded a high advance and turned out to be a commercial failure. I'm not sure I made this vow. It happened while I was urinating. Shades of Wes Anderson and. I thought, wow, like that seemed to be the shimmering, enchanting light in uh, in this novel that's kind of mock, doing mock fantasy sort of stuff, and really interesting, like and 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 making fun of literary genre and everything, like and and looking at all these layers of sort of our, our sordid, conflicted, unaware selves, and that seems like a moment of real awareness. And and outside of yourself, kind of. I mean, it's, it was lovely. They, like, and you have some pictures of you guys at this concert, and you say, "I saw the face of God there." Yeah, uh, it was a really astonishing moment. I had ordered uh, a ticket to get into the pit to see Guns N' Roses, and instead of getting a digital ticket, I ordered a paper ticket. And then they sent it to me. And then a week later, they sent me another ticket. And I was like, well, all right, this guy should come. And then, like you said, there was this complication where um, the ticket, one of the tickets worked, one of the tickets didn't, but he was able to talk his way into the pit and was dressed like, I don't know, he was dressed like Keith Moon in 1969. And he had just had like the liposurgery. He's got all this hanging skin that's really painful. Like he can, like the night before he's having trouble sleeping. Because he's got all this, like, yeah. He had gastric. He had yeah. ga- He had he had gastric bypass, and one of the things that happens is like you'll lose the weight, but then you just have drapes of skin until you have another thing. But so anyway, you know, I got in, he didn't get in, and I was wandering around the Staples Center just texting him, being like, "Look, just buy a ticket on StubHub. I'll pay you back." just so that you get in because it was not clear to me at all. He was going to get in. And then I went, you know, and I was drinking because what else do you do? Um, and then I went in back to the pit. And as soon as I got on the floor, there the guy was, he had talked himself into this guns and roses show. He's in the pit, the most valuable, he talked his way into like the most valuable ticket in the, in the place. And you can see him from a million miles away because he's still pretty big and he's dressed like Keith Moon in 1969. And I really did make that vow before I left, which was like, if he gets in, I, I because I, I, for whatever reason, I had figured out that probably those two, t- both tickets wouldn't, right? And I was like, you know what? If this guy gets in, I'm just going to stop worrying about everything. And he got in and I've more or less... But I mean, it was a transcendent moment, and there are moments of transcendence. Why that moment? Why was that such a big deal? Like, why was that emotionally so powerful for you? I mean, I think part of it is just like, first of all, he and I 
have known each other forever, right? Secondly, one of the things that had really bonded us when we first met was talking about Guns N' Roses because he was a huge heavy metal fan. But most, I found the bands that he liked really terrible. But like Guns N' Roses was a point of commonality, right? And then when I got that second ticket, I instantly knew, okay, this guy should go. And then, you know, going through the time period where we're building up to it and then sort of having this crash right before it where I realized, oh God, this ticket isn't going to work. And then having the thing actually work out. I don't know. There's something that there's something about all of those connections where it just was like, that was the place where he and I were supposed to be in that moment. And it's really unusual to actually have one of those experiences. I think most of our lives are like this are filled with a kind of confusion about whether or not we're in the right place or doing the right thing. And when you have one of those moments where you do know where you're supposed to be and you do know that you're doing the thing you're supposed to be, and it happens in the face of seemingly an impossibility, right? Which is like, who talks their way into the pit, right? Like, who, like those tickets cost so much money. How did someone manage to just go up to the general manager and be like, hey, my ticket's not working. Can you let me in? And then he's there. And it just, you know, it was just like one of the, and then the show was amazing, you know, on top of it. Um, I don't know. It just felt like a faded moment. Now that could be entirely self-serving delusion, but that doesn't remove the feeling of that fate. And it happened like in the middle of writing the book. And I was like, you know what? I'll put this in the book. Why not? This this feels like a really transcendent experience. And what what else where else is it going to go? You know, if I don't if I don't put this in here right now. And I mean, when I put that in, it was maybe like 5 days after it happened. So it was really fresh. Memories fade, things change. Who knows what it would have been like. But it was, you know, I mean, I think what you said at the beginning of this is really good, which is like there is a mechanistic aspect to American life where one of the things that has happened and it's really really hard to track is that all of the pleasure has drained out of American life and we don't know how to talk about it, right? Like American life, if you, not for everyone by any means, but in the post-war, like after World War II, at least the, the illusion of American life was that it was going to be pleasurable, right? That there were pleasures, and I don't mean like sensual pleasures, that there just was going to be a certain pleasure. No, but, and on every metric, like this is like Pinker's book, yeah. Enlightenment Now, like on every me- metric, we live in the best time in history, like violence, right. illness, this, yeah. the life, but... but What's interesting is we seem so unhappy with it. But I think the pleasure has just drained out of every in American life. Something about technology is the enemy of pleasure, right? And it's it's a really hard thing to explain because how do you measure pleasure, right? I don't know. But you can look back. You can just see how people thought in 1965 and the way that people were thinking almost, almost seems incomprehensible, right? Like there was a almost an across-the-board optimism that American life could have this pleasure. And now it just doesn't. No one thinks that anymore. Is there anyone who's really arguing that, you know, if things just get, you know, if we just keep working at it, things are going to be great? Like Donald Trump. That's it. Every one of his families. (laughs) But I don't know. Do you think he really, do you think he's really arguing for that? I think he's Uh, arguing for, for he's arguing for something He's arguing for the pleasure of a kind of controlled chaos, yeah, right? which is something very different. And you can take pleasure, even though your life it might not feel pleasurable, it, art side's winning, so you, you can take exactly in that. Yeah. When I read that section of your book, I was thinking for some reason, I, the, my mind went to this commencement address. John Stewart gave it, William and Mary, his alma mater, like a couple years after 9-11. And at the conclusion of the address, you know, he's talking about every generation's challenge. And, he's, you know, and he, he says that, you know, he was in New York on 9-11 when the towers came down. He lived like 14 blocks away. And he remembered walking around in a daze for weeks. And Giuliani said, you know, we got to get back to normal. We got to get back to the way things were. And he says to the class... And one day I was coming out of my building and on my stoop was a man who was crouched over and he appeared to be in deep thought. And as I got closer to him, I realized he was playing with himself. (laughs) And that's when I thought, you know what? 
we're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the common goodness that I'm talking right, about. Right. That's what's really for some reason, way. the levity in that amidst the track, like yeah. there's something about this moment you had that was funny. I, I like Quincy, like strange and, and, and Wes Anderson ish in tone. And, 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 you know, it, it, it speaks to what I think the real fantasy of the novels pursuing, right? Like the, I think the fantasy story is a window dressing right. for looking for real enchantment. So I, I thank you for giving us uh, a picture of what that looks like in only Americans yeah. burn in hell. And thanks for writing the book and thanks for spending some time talking. Yeah. Thanks it. for having me on. That was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Jeff for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book. Only Americans burn in hell. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.